Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Red Flags, a post-true crime boom true crime podcast from Investigation Discovery, where we talk about the warning signs, big and small. We are your one-stop shop for all things true crime. The latest cases in the news and the shows and podcasts and books about them. I'm Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer and podcaster who likes to focus on female criminals. And I'm Karina Michelle, an armchair detective, but I also have a sociology degree to back it up. And I started talking about true crime on TikTok at Daily True Crime Minisodes. And now she has over 200,000 followers. Stop. <laughs> so, okay. Karina and I want to start by talking about some things we've been interested in consuming lately before we get into today's deep dive. Karina, I've been dying to tell you about this podcast I'm listening to because I don't think you've listened to it and... I have a lot of feelings about it. It's very niche. Okay. Okay. So the podcast is called For the Defense, and the host is named David Oscar Marcus. He's a Miami trial attorney, and it's basically a podcast where he interviews big deal criminal defense lawyers. So I'm into oh. it because I've always sort of been into law. Like I used to want to be a lawyer, and it's mm-hmm. it's currently my backup. Like when I'm 70, I think I'm going to go to law school and become a really cool badass old lady lawyer. (laughs) You heard it here first. So I like it because it's very behind the scenes law, but Mm -hmm. it's also very controversial. Like these lawyers say a lot of things that I don't agree with and you probably wouldn't either from just like a moral level. But yeah, it illuminates how the courtroom is such a theater. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about it in terms of fake news. You know, we're all kind of like there is such a thing as objective truth. And Mm -hmm. I kind of wonder if in the courtroom there isn't such a thing as objective truth. Because everyone's really interesting. Everyone's just spinning it. The defense is spinning it their way and the prosecution is spinning it their way. And that's what they're supposed to do. 
The first episode is with Harvey Weinstein's defense lawyer. It's a hard listen because, you know, she doesn't think he did anything wrong. And I mean, she says a lot of stuff that you and I would not agree with. But Mm -hmm. I do think as true crime consumers, it's actually very important for us to see this side of the criminal justice process, whether or not we agree with what the person is saying. Yeah. And then um, I also listened to an episode with Michael Jackson's lawyer, and it's full of these fascinating details like why there were no black people on Michael Jackson's jury. And it has to do with this whole mind game that he was playing with the prosecution. Like, it has nothing to do with the morals of our everyday lives as citizens. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It actually sounds really interesting. Yeah. I feel myself ready to binge listen (laughs) to it. Yes. I think you'll like it. And I'm not endorsing what these lawyers (laughs) say or do. But I, if you like true crime and you are interested in the courtroom, I think you'll find it pretty fascinating. So speaking of binge listening, Mm -hmm. it's become my favorite pastime in 2020. Mm -hmm. And Spotify just released their wrap up of everything that you were (laughs) listening to this year. And it really called me out on my (laughs) listening habits when it comes to true crime podcast. Apparently, there's this podcast that I really loved called Crime Salad. And I listened to 12 of their episodes in one day. So that's like 12 how, hours how of did me. You do it? So my strategy is I clean my entire apartment. Oh, yes. And then whenever I feel like I'm done, I just make an excuse to clean something mm. so that I can keep listening. So it's like, oh, the stove that I never use, yes. I'm going to clean this. Cleaning while listening to a true crime podcast is like my truest pleasure. <laughs> me too. That's my favorite thing. Yes. So Crime Salad is about vegetarian crimes. Yes. How did you know? (laughs) Intuition. (laughs) So no, every week they just post a different case. They don't really have anything niche about them. Mm -hmm. It's actually just general cases. Mm -hmm. But I like the way that they talk about them and they make it very digestible. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) very easy to listen to, which is how I ended up listening to 12 (laughs) in one day. I'm really sorry that Spotify exposed your deep, dark secret like that, though. Yeah, it wasn't it's fair. Okay. Yeah, maybe it was an intervention, but <laughs> yeah, it's it okay. <laughs> Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Spring is officially in bloom here in the Northern Hemisphere. And with a fresh season underway, you might be seeking your own transformation. 
For some, that means a new approach to weight loss or nutrition. Noom has a unique approach. Noom is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. It's built to meet you where you are because Noom understands that no two people are the same. Noom stands out to me because it offers a holistic approach to well-being. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself, and treat yourself you should. What's more, Noom believes in nourishing rather than restricting. Noom can help you lose weight while still enjoying your favorite foods, because this approach is about eating well and treating your body right. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Speaking of binge listening, we're going to talk today about binge watching. So, you know, in this show, we're trying to take a look at the true crime landscape. So today we wanted to talk about serial killer movies and documentaries, which are obviously a huge chunk of this genre. There's a really weird relationship going on between serial killers and Hollywood, and we're going to get into it. We're also bringing on two guests to help us with this. Professor David Schmid, who studies a lot about serial killers and pop culture, and Kathy Kleiner, who who is a survivor of Ted Bundy's 1978 Omega attack. So I come to this subject from many, many years ago in 2018 when I thought I was really identifying a trend. There was a bunch mm-hmm. of media about Ted Bundy coming out. The Zac Efron movie was yet to be released. Oxygen had just done a bunch of stuff on Ted Bundy. ID did a documentary called Ted Bundy, Mind of a Monster. And there was this indie short film called Friday, which is actually very amazing, making the rounds. And so I was like, we're in a Ted Bundy boom. I'm going to write about it. And so I pitched a piece to Vulture and wrote about it. And I really thought that I was seeing the top of the wave then. You know, after that, like three movies about Manson came out with the 50th anniversary of those crimes. And now Netflix is putting out yet another Dahmer movie uh, that's going to start filming roughly in January. So it's like these movies aren't going anywhere, especially movies about famous serial killers that have already had a bunch of movies made out of them. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wanted to talk about it, because it's so I don't want to sound too judgmental because I watch these movies, but it seems a little unnecessary to me. Like, why do we need so many movies about Bundy and Manson and Dahmer? Sidebar. After my piece came out, I got an email in my inbox that I thought was someone trolling me because this person was emailing and saying, I'm Kathy Kleiner. I survived the Chi Omega Ted Bundy attack. And I I had read her name so many times in so many books. I just couldn't believe that I was hearing from the real person. But I was. It was really Kathy. We're best friends now. And I'm really excited to bring her on later because... These narratives are so often just the voice of the serial killer over and over. So I think it's really important that we hear her voice. Yeah. So I'm definitely more into the serial killer documentary aspect. Right. So to you, documentaries feel more authentic, I guess. Like you feel more comfortable consuming them for that reason. Yeah. So I was looking at how did we get to this point? What I came to find is that it's just that true crime 
is following the trends and following how modern society consumes true crime. So before you did have a lot of newspaper articles where now you have more dramatized Hollywood TV shows like Ryan Murphy's American Crime Story or Mm -hmm. Dirty John. And Mm -hmm. it also happened where instead of documentaries, you also have the introduction of podcasts like Serial. Or Red Flags. Or Red Flags, exactly. (laughs) And I think that when it comes to that, Hollywood has really taken advantage of that. And something that I was reading is that a lot of these true crime stories do very well to the point where they start winning awards. So Mm -hmm. a lot of Emmy winning, a lot of Oscar winning. And so Hollywood has taken full advantage of that. Mm. And I think with that also comes a sense of artistic or creative license to take the story and make it what you want, where I always Mm. feel like documentaries do a better job of staying true to the story. Yeah, I think that's sort of the age-old debate between fiction and nonfiction. I've been in writing classrooms where people argue which one gets at the truth better. The Mm -hmm. stuff that's technically true, like the documentaries, the nonfiction, the beat-by-beat factual stuff, or is it possible that fiction can sort of get to the emotional truth easier or quicker or more effectively? Sometimes I'm inclined to be like fiction, Mm -hmm. but... uh, It sounds like you're maybe more on the documentary side of things. Yeah, but I do understand. I do understand that when the consumer watches a more Hollywood version of it, Mm -hmm. it does feed that hunger for reality while at the same time still being able to detach from the real world, which is weird. Yeah, we sort of get to have our cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to documentaries, do you have specific favorites? Yeah. So this month I watched the 93 victims of Samuel Little on Investigation Discovery. And this is a case that we will be talking about again later on in the season. Mm -hmm. I watched the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And I also watched a documentary on YouTube about Sante and Kenny Kimes. (gasps) Karina, Mm -hmm. they're in my book that's coming out February 23rd. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) Aren't they out of control? (laughs) Oh my god, it it was it was so horrifically interesting mm-hmm. and horrific. I don't have another word <laughs> yeah. for it. And it was also like how have I not heard about this before? I know. Quick summary of what it is. It's this mother and son who go on a road trip, I guess you could say, across America murdering wealthy people. Yes, tabloids call them mommy and Clyde. <laughs> so that kind of gives you their vibe yeah it's definitely something to spend hours researching and binge watching too yes and purchasing books on so tori i actually have a true crime confession for you i never went through a serial killer phase Mm -hmm. so i think that there's a point in every true crime consumer where it's like they get awakened to serial killer world and they have to spend an entire weekend mm-hmm. trying to figure everything out. Mm, interesting. And Karina, I was going to take on the burden of educating you and giving you an assignment, right, of which movies mm-hmm. you should watch. But then Thanksgiving happened and I wasn't checking my email And sure enough, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, I get an email from Karina, who has gone ahead and given herself a syllabus. (laughs) And might I add, it was flawless. Which movies did you you choose to watch? I watched My Friend Dahmer. Mm -hmm. I watched Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. 
I watched Zodiac, and I wrapped everything up with Monster. Mm. Yep. I, I think you've hit some of the big ones and some of the recent ones. Mm-hmm. So, Karina, I've been thinking about the different serial killer movies that are out there, and I've kind of categorized them in my mind in about four different ways. We're just going to dive into a couple of these, but let me tell you the four that I'm thinking. First, we have the he-was-just-an-ordinary-guy films. These films try to intentionally show the serial killer as someone who is kind of similar to the rest of us. You know, could have been your neighbor, could have been your boyfriend. Then you have the manhunt-type films. Zodiac is my big example of this, where it's maybe even less about the serial killer and you're really rooting for the detectives, the cops, the journalists, you know, the person who's not giving up. You have the empathetic films, like Monster, which we'll talk about, where you really feel for the serial killer in a way that maybe makes you feel a little bit weird. And then... Maybe the most classic category, I would say, is like the monstrous films or the horrifying films. You know, just your your films where the serial killer is super, super gruesome, horrific and other. And those are films where you watch it and you're like, the serial killer is nothing like me. So Silence of the Lambs is one of them. There's a really horrific film called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer that's about uh, Henry Lee Lucas. That's kind of like your classic serial killer film in my mind. So in order to cast some more light on this subject, I talked to Professor David Schmid, who's at the University of Buffalo. He researches serial killers and pop culture, which I have to say I think is so cool. And he has a book called Natural Born Celebrities, Serial Killers in American Culture. So he was the perfect person to bring on and talk about the relationship between Hollywood and serial killers. In your book, Natural Born Celebrities, you argue that the film industry is really responsible for creating the serial killer celebrity culture that we see today. How exactly did the relationship between serial killers and Hollywood start? So if you're going to date this phenomenon of where the relationship between Hollywood and serial murder really starts to fall into place in a way that we would recognize now, I think you have to point to um, Silence of the Lambs. Mm. Like, that's really the moment where all of these different threads come together and you have a sort of full-fledged cultural phenomenon where um, serial killer as a sort of type that movies can be about enters the mass cultural consciousness Hmm. and at that point that you know we had reached a really interesting stage where the serial killer was in the process of being turned into a folk hero Hmm. and and hollywood was playing a major role in that and what happens when hollywood starts making movies blatantly about real serial killers ted bundy jeffrey dahmer charles manson what happens then Obviously, there's a lot of debate about whether real-life serial killers are influenced by (laughs) popular cultural representations, be it Hollywood or something else, and whether this creates serial killers, to put it bluntly. Mm -hmm. I think it's always been the case, and Science of the Lambs is exemplary in this respect as well, that Hollywood fictional uh, serial killer movies have taken their inspiration from real-life cases. Mm -hmm. And... That's part of the process by which 
a canon of famous serial killers becomes established. And oh. that is kind of the precondition for the biopic. So once oh. you have, let's say, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, um, John Wayne Gacy, Jack the Ripper, Eileen Warnos, whoever it happens mm -hmm. to be, then you start seeing films like Monster, um, which mm. was based on Eileen Warnos, or you start seeing made-for-TV movies about Ted Bundy, like back in the 80s. What's interesting about what's happening right now, I think, is that when you look at the recent biopics of Bundy or a series like Mindhunter, the two things that jump out to me. First, these films assume an audience that's knowledgeable about serial mm -hmm. killer culture and about serial killers. But the other mm -hmm. thing I think is really interesting about them is that all of them, to one degree or another, are defined by nostalgia. And it's not just nostalgia for the 70s or the 80s as like a simpler time. It's a nostalgia for the figure of the serial killer himself. And I think it's driven by the fact that as bizarre as it sounds, people can look back at figures like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and say to themselves, hey, that's the devil we know. That's the mm -hmm. one that we're familiar with. That's the one that we grew up with. We're in the process of watching how serial murders are being turned into a kind of Americana. It's like part of our folk culture. Interesting. So you say that most serial killer pop culture doesn't force us to ask why we're watching it. And now right. that is something we are trying to answer in the episode and probably not going to truly answer. But what would you say? Why do we watch this stuff? Do you have a theory? I do think that what these um, films tap into is a kind of what I would describe as a sort of ambient fear that defines what it means to be American. And mm. by that, I mean a sort of low level of anxiety that is just defining part of our everyday lives. And that comes from the perception that we live in a violent society, mm. that, you know, potentially we could be victimized at any time. And this is why, even though historically, you know, we've seen dramatic declines in the rates of violent crime over the last 20, 30 years, but you go and poll people and ask them how likely they are to be victimized, those yeah. numbers have remained remarkably constant. So there's that sort of, you know, disconnect between reality and perception. And I think that disconnect is one of the things that drives the market for serial killer pop culture. But in terms mm. of where the fascination comes from, I think um, it's from the combination of two what appear to be contradictory facts. On the one hand, you have people who do things that are inconceivable, that we could never imagine doing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they look exactly like you and me. Mm. And it's that combination of the extraordinary and the ordinary mm -hmm. that I think is at the core of our fascination with this figure, because it's what makes them so unsettling. The last point that Professor Schmidt makes really resonated with me because this was my experience with watching my friend Dahmer. I understood, or at least I interpreted, that the purpose of the film was to show all these red flags. Mm -hmm. Because if you haven't seen my friend Dahmer, it's pre-serial killer Dahmer. So it talks about his awkward teenage phase until he got to the point where he started killing people. Yeah, it ends when he picks up his first victim, right? But it, yeah. it doesn't show a single crime. No. 
And so throughout the entire movie, in my mind, I was like, I think they're trying to highlight the red flags that these are the signs that someone is going to become a serial killer. So things like a broken family, feeling like an outsider at school, and also picking up roadkill and having a lab where you kind of hang out with dead animals. But weirdly enough, with my friend Dahmer, I, in a very uncomfortable way, really related to him. Mm. And I have a story for you that I think might change the way that you see me. <laughs> Tell me. But this was the part where I was like, oh, no, like pre-serial killer mm-hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer and I had a lot in common. So... When I was younger, when I was around 13 or 14, I wanted to be a forensic anthropologist. Yeah. And I I was obsessed with the TV show Bones, and I wanted to do that. I wanted to work with Bones. And one day, I was outside of my home playing, and I noticed something on the road. And I was like, oh, what is that? So I went to investigate, and it was a dead cat. But it was at the point where it was mostly Bones. So I did what any child would do when they see an abandoned animal, and I asked my mom if I could keep it. (laughs) And she said, yes, but you have to clean the bones first. Mm -hmm. So I, like, got a little tin box, and I picked it up with gloves, and I washed it. And for a good, like, two years, that was my most prized possession. Kavina, you did such a good job. No, you were such a little forensic (laughs) anthropologist. I think that's sweet. I think that this should be your second career when you turn 70. Oh, yeah. You should try to finally live out your dream and go to forensic anthropology school. So another film that I think fits under the he was just an ordinary guy category is extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. Now, Karina, let me ask you, before you watch this film, did you know a lot about Ted Bundy's crimes? The one that I feel I know kind of the most about is the Chi Omega mm-hmm. one. But the individual ones, yeah. I'm not too familiar with. Yeah. Well, sadly, there were so many that yeah. that's a big ask. I'm asking you because I think that if someone doesn't know a lot about his crimes and watches the Zac Efron film, mm-hmm. you're coming away with such an incomplete picture of what this dude did because yeah. it wasn't. This is going to sound awful. It wasn't that he just, air quotes, air quotes, killed and assaulted women, but he also did things with their heads and decapitated them Mm -hmm. and revisited corpses. I mean, I don't even want to get into it here, but it was like this extra level of desecration to the bodies. Mm -hmm. And would you know that from the Zac Efron movie? (laughs) Would you know any of that? No. No. But would you know that Zac Efron has nice abs, thus implying that Ted Bundy had nice abs? Yeah, I completely agree. And that's why for so long I was so detached to serial killer Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, because I know people are like, oh, there's no such thing as evil people. It's just people with problems. But I'm someone who I, I do think that there's evil people. And it's harsh whenever you have these type of movies where you constantly have to remind yourself, no, this person's evil. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Monster. So it sounds to me like You're saying a hesitation you have with fictionalized films about serial killers is they're fiction, but the crimes really Mm -hmm. happened. You have to force yourself to remember that they're real. Is that fair? Yeah. When I watched Monster, it turned Eileen Wuornos into a three-dimensional person for me in a way that reading the coverage of her case hadn't ever And maybe part of that is because Charlize Theron is, like, so incredible. And, you know, maybe part of Mm -hmm. that is just because Hollywood did a good job and made me feel things. But I felt like they stuck really close to her story. And 
showed her personality from so many different angles that she just like sprung to life for me. And I was like, oh, my God, this really happened. Even though I was watching a fictional, a technically fictional movie. Monster, it was the one that I had the most interesting experience with emotionally Mm -hmm. because it got to a point where I started to feel so bad for her. Mm -hmm. And I really started to empathize with her. And saying, oh, my God, can she just catch a break? Like, why is she going through this? And then another part of me was like, no, Karina, she's a serial killer. Like, she's a murderer. Mm -hmm. You need to stop. I think it's normal to go through these emotions Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how do I actually feel about this? I think it's natural to wrestle with those two sides of yourself. And I would actually be more gracious to the side of yourself that wants to empathize. I mean, there is so much in her life that is empathizable, if that's a word. Mm -hmm. And I think well-done true crime or well-done movies like Monster, they force you to hold both of those truths at the same time, which is really hard because you're like, how can both of these things be true? But they just are. So for me, this is how I made peace with it. I don't feel bad to the point where I excuse what she's done because I don't think that at all. But it did make me realize that in a lot of true crime, the idea of a perpetrator and a victim are not mutually exclusive. Mm, You have a lot of true crime cases where the victim is also a perpetrator of a crime Mm -hmm. or a perpetrator of a crime is a victim of a different crime. Mm -hmm. And I think it's coming to peace with that idea that not everything is so mutually exclusive Mm -hmm. and black and white and as simple. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to come off like, oh, I sympathize so much in these poor serial killers because I don't at (laughs) all. But when you kind of see them painted in this different light, I think it does make you start to question your feelings. And I think it's something that I'm never going to understand fully. Mm -hmm. I think this is just going to go on through my whole true crime journey. Yeah, until you turn 70 and become a forensic anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have all the answers. So, Karina, Mm -hmm. whenever I research lightly about you know, why do we consume this stuff as a culture? The popular answer is because there is darkness within us. What do you think about that theory? Karina's making a shocked face. (laughs) Tori, I just don't agree with this theory because I think it's overly simplistic to say that we all have this inner darkness in us that this is somehow feeding Because in a way, it's saying that we kind of relate to these crimes and what is being done and we relate to the killer, which I feel like even though I was the weird kid who kept dead cat bones, I just feel like I'm not capable of that and I just don't relate to it. Yes, I totally agree. It's simplistic. And that's why I like talking to Professor David Schmid. His explanations for this are a lot more nuanced. And he's not the only person in academia who's grappling with this question. So I did a little digging and came up with some other theories about why we like watching these movies. And I wanted to float a couple by you and get your reactions. You do not have to agree with these. Okay. Okay. So one theory that author Robert Conrath says in a paper called The Guys Who Shoot to Thrill is Mm -hmm. that the serial killer is kind of like the ultimate but dysfunctional American dream figure who's a consumer. Mm -hmm. He says that serial killers stalk their victims just as they shop for meat at the supermarket with a discerning eye for those subtle differences between generic products that makes one of them somehow special, unique. They represent gone shopping, quote unquote, gone awry in a day and age when shopping has become a sort of personal quest for authentication. 
So serial killer as consumer, like shopping for victims. What do you think about that? That's actually really disturbing Mm -hmm. to think about. Yeah. Is it uncomfortable because it feels like a little true? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It does feel true. I can see where they're coming from. But also the idea of you thinking of a human being as you would grocery shopping is very uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 It's obviously like nothing any of us want to sign off on, but I... It mm-hmm. also does seem like that is how serial killers work. I think what Robert Conrath is arguing is like part of why we as a culture can't get enough of serial killers is because in that way they're like us, except, you know, we're shopping for groceries and they're shopping for victims. It's not quite the same as like we see their darkness in ourselves, but it's more like we see their consumerism in ourselves, which sounds so weird to say out loud, but I, I think he has a point. Okay, so here's another theory, and this one is presented by Caroline Joe S. Pickhart and Cecil Greek, who wrote about this in the Journal of Criminal Justice and Popular Culture, which sounds like my dream journal. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a theory not about why we like serial killer films, but sort of like why they need to exist. They Mm -hmm. write about how the actual FBI, like the real FBI, has admitted on multiple points that they consume fiction, like detective fiction, crime fiction, etc., which is really weird to think about, but apparently they do. The original Mm -hmm. Mindhunters did, I think. And anyway, these academics are arguing that serial killer movies shouldn't be kept just in pop culture, like they shouldn't just be something that you and I consume, but that they Mm -hmm. should be sort of fed into criminology because fictional representations of crimes can help the field of criminology. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Isn't that kind of weird? No, it weirdly makes sense Mm. because I think that And again, as a professional binge watcher Mm -hmm. and apparently now binge listener, too, it's easier to point out patterns when you see things back to back or see things in such a memorable way like a movie Mm. where it's like, oh, Jeffrey Dahmer had a beetle. Ted Bundy also had a beetle. Like (laughs) you start making these connections that maybe before they weren't so obvious. So I think that maybe the dramatization highlights points that are later on helpful to kind of notice a pattern. After doing my movie assignment and also taking all of the documentaries that I've already watched into account, something that I struggle with is that a lot of them are not victim-based. So for example, in a lot of the movies that I watched, I did notice that the victims became this sort of passing character that you don't get attached to and you don't know anything about them. So when they get killed in the movie, it's hard for you to have this emotional connection to them. Yeah, that's something that this genre is always going to struggle with, I think. I mean, the reason these stories are being told is because of the serial killer. You know, the serial killer is the one who steps in and makes the plot happen. I mean, not to sound completely crass. So, of course, we're focusing on them. But you raise a really good point that um, a lot of times the victims are... I mean, in some of the movies we've already discussed, they are not even on screen. Like, there's not even an actor who was ever hired to play them. So I thought that it would be good to hear from 
a real person who survived a serial killer, which is why we brought on Kathy Kleiner, who actually survived Ted Bundy and who can tell us a little bit about what it's like to see your attacker portrayed on film. My name is Kathy Kleiner. I'm a survivor of Ted Bundy. In 1978, I was attacked in Tallahassee in my room at the Chi Omega sorority house. This episode, we're talking about serial killers in Hollywood. So what, if any, serial killer movies have you seen? Pretty much. I've uh, watched all the uh, movies that come on TV. Um, There aren't any Mm -hmm. that I shy away from or Mm -hmm. don't want to watch. I find them very interesting. Regardless of my past, I just find them interesting genre to watch. I think something that's fascinating to me about you is I feel like people would assume you wouldn't ever want to see a film about Bundy. You would be too traumatized. And I've talked to you many times now and you're always like, oh, no, I read all the books. I see all the movies. I'm very interested in how obviously he's portrayed in the different films and movies. Mm -hmm. I find it healing being I wanted to see how they portrayed all the stories. And um, also, um, if they did show the part of the Kyo house, (laughs) I wanted to know if they showed um, who I was and who would act for me. (laughs) So I find, I do find them interesting. It does make me sad to watch the movies and then they do not recognize the victims. They do not Mm -hmm. give them a face or Mm -hmm. life or dreams. And they kind of just show them as particularly a body that Bundy has killed. And that Mm -hmm. is so sad because he took all these women away from us, from this world so soon than they should have been. Tell me a little bit about the trial itself, because I know there was a key question there that revolved around whether or not you'd seen Bundy's face before. When I testified, I was scared. I was 21 years old and and frightened and didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. So when I sat down in the witness stand, I looked around the room. And when I looked at the defense table, I saw Ted Bundy sitting there. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him. And my eyes didn't wander around the room anymore. I just looked at him and I was, I don't know if I I wasn't scared. I was mad. I was upset. I had a burning feel of just going to get him and hurt him. Mm -hmm. And now at this point, I had control of myself and I felt strong. Mm -hmm. One of the defense questions that was asked, is this the man you saw in your room that night? who attacked you in Chi Omega. Again, my eyes started welling up mm-hmm. and I had to say, no, I don't know if it was him. And it made me feel so sad inside because he attacked me. He hurt me and my sor- sorority sisters and I could not help condemn him. I could not mm-hmm. help con- have him convicted. And that hurt me so bad that I wanted to help to uh, put him away for for all of us, for all, mm-hmm. for as many victims as I could. You knew it was him, but you hadn't technically seen his face that night. So you couldn't technically say, yes, that's the guy. Do you think that is why you are so interested in seeing films about him? And because you didn't technically see his face, is it giving you some sort of catharsis to now see his face as much as you can and consume as much as you can about him? I think you're right, because... All along, I had this black 
ugly silhouette in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I saw that, and that's all I remembered. And I did not have a face. But you're right, reading everything and seeing as much as I can, there is a face on it. And it mm. I think it helps me to heal because, once again, I it wasn't just this black thing that attacked me. It was Ted Bundy. And that made me realize that um, he's sick, he was real, and this is the face that he wore. Tori, I really enjoyed your interview with Kathy because it really put things into perspective for me. I think as someone who I try to be very victim-centered and very empathetic to victims and survivors, it was really shocking to me to hear that she watches this type of content specifically on Ted Bundy because I always assumed that that was uncomfortable for them and it was in a way weirdly disrespectful and I always had that in the back of my mind. Yeah, well, it's a good reminder for us all, I think, that, you know, not all survivors are like they don't necessarily want the same things or shy away from the same things. I mean, I was just like you. The first time I talked to Kathy, I was ready for her to go on this long rant about how much she hated all this Ted Bundy content that we're seeing. And she was like, oh, I watch it all. So, yeah, it's a good reminder that we just need to always turn back to the victim and ask them how they feel about it. Yeah, definitely shy away from the assumption and just Mm -hmm. look at it firsthand and see how Mm -hmm. they feel. One of the diabolically clever things about serial killers and how they sort of make themselves into celebrities is when you kill 30 plus people like Ted Bundy, there is literally not enough time in a movie about you to cover all your victims. Like, it's like they, I don't want to say they intentionally do it, but they make it so the reality of their crimes means we don't have the space to focus on the victims. Like, we don't Mm -hmm. have the mental capacity to even remember all the victims' names. A lot of that responsibility falls on us as the media. I mean, you and I know that (laughs) the true crime world could do a lot better with centering Mm -hmm. victims. But I do think there's this really sinister truth of these crimes, which is just like, we don't have the space. I actually read this quote where Ted Bundy was being interviewed by journalist Hugh Ainsworth, and he was talking about serial killers and body counts. And Bundy said, the higher the number, the better. The more horrified people will be, the more they will read, and the more interested they'll be in finding out what makes a person like this tick. Make it up. I'm not going to do it. I can't, but you can. Ugh. So Ted Bundy was very aware of his status as celebrity and his potential as celebrity, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what it sounds like, because he's encouraging people to kind of sensationalize him Mm -hmm. and say, oh, I can't make that number up, but you have the ability to do that. So go as high as you want, because it's going to get people's attention. Yeah. And they're going to read about it. Mm -hmm. We gave him exactly what he wanted. Yeah. So I know we've gone over a lot of theories about why we like these movies, why we keep making these movies. And I just want to end with my favorite one, the one that resonates with me the most. Okay. And you can tell me what you think about it. This is another theory from Robert Conrath, who was the uh, the guy with the shopping for victims consumerist theory. Mm-hmm. But he kind of wraps up his piece by arguing that serial killers are so distinctly unique that 
That's mm-hmm. why we can't get enough of them. He says that basically, as a society, we all worry that we're kind of on an assembly line, right? Like, we want to mm-hmm. be unique so bad. But when we look at our year-end Spotify wrapped, a lot of us had Taylor Swift's Folklore as the most mm-hmm. listened to album, right? So, yes. so we all have this sneaking suspicion that we're not as special as we want to be. And that's mm-hmm. why we love celebrities. And he mentions Madonna and Prince and Michael Jackson as these real aberrations. Like everyone's like a shrink-wrapped plastic doll. And then Madonna and Prince and Michael Jackson, they just jump off Mm -hmm. the assembly line because they're so amazing. And the sad truth is serial killers do the same thing. They also jump off the assembly line and show us that they're unique. You can argue a lot about Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, but you can't say they weren't aberrations and they weren't yeah, sort of these unique, thank God, figures. And so this theory, and this rings true to me, is that we watch serial killer movies not because there is darkness within us all and we all secretly want to be serial killers, but because we all secretly or openly want to be unique. And so Mm -hmm. that's why we turn these killers into celebrities and can't get enough of them, because we suspect that we're regular and mediocre and boring. Yeah. And in a really dark way, and I mean this in the most respectful way possible, Tori and I are always very victim-centered and try to keep that in mind. But it's almost to the point where we feel as normal as the victims, Mm -hmm. where we feel like we were also Like with Ted Bundy, Kyle Omega, I was also in a sorority. Mm -hmm. I was also just this regular girl going to school. And it's such a difficult thing to think about and make peace with in a weird way. Mm -hmm. But I, I do see what you're saying where there is this fascination to them because they're so different and they think so differently than us. And a lot of people who are into true crime, when you talk to them about serial killers, they always say, oh, I'm so interested in them because I am interested in the psychology of it. Mm -hmm. Why do they do the things they do? Why do they react to the way they do to things? What makes them act in that way? Because as an hopefully whoever's listening is an average all day individual, we can't wrap our minds around it and we can't understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think as much as we loathe and disapprove of their actions, we are drawn to the fact that they broke through the rules of society and, again, stepped off the assembly line and Mm -hmm. made themselves famous. So, Karina, we got our first voicemail. (gasps) That's actually really exciting. Yeah, check it out. Hi, uh, my name is Damon, and I'm calling from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I would like you to cover... um, Something related to the John Wayne Gacy case, uh, where he talked about possibly having accomplices related to his various crimes. Thanks. Love this podcast so far. Bye. Damon, your timing is impeccable because ID actually has an entire narrative podcast coming out on December 15th that's about this question. It's called The Clown and the Candyman. It's about the potential horrific link between John Wayne Gacy and another serial killer, Dean Coral. And the podcast is actually a prequel to a miniseries coming out on ID in January. So check that out for some answers. But Damon, your question also sent me down a rabbit hole of my own. I've sent some emails. I'm doing some digging. So I'll get back to you in the near future. And if you guys want us to respond to your voicemail, you know you can call us at 888-9-R-E-D-F-L-A, which is 
We both want to recommend a podcast that we love called Fruit Loops, and it focuses on serial killers of color. So we really suggest that you listen to that. I think that Fruit Loops started right when I was starting my podcast, Criminal Broads. And I remember like we followed each other on Instagram and we were like, yay, like we each have like 100 followers. And Mm -hmm. then life got busy and I stopped listening to podcasts for a while. And I recently went back to them and they're so good. One of the hosts does like a customized song if you donate to their Patreon. <laughs> like she, she'll she do a song with your name in it, which I can only aspire to that one day. I love that. It's so cute. Thank you so much to our guests, Kathy Kleiner and Professor Schmid. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. For more true crime conversations, be sure to check out ID on Twitter at Discovery ID or on Instagram and TikTok at Investigation Discovery. And you can ask us questions on our own Instagram feeds too. I'm at Tori underscore underscore Telfer. And I am at the Karina Michelle. Thanks for listening today. Red Flags is a production of Investigation Discovery and Audiation. For ID, our executive producers are Jessica Lowther and Amy Angelowitz. For Audiation, our executive producers are Sandy Smallins and Michael Wolfson. Mark Lotto is our story editor. Ireland Meacham is our producer. And Brad Stratton is our editor-mixer. Theme music by Marty Beller. Audiation. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.